Dear Heavenly Father, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, Father. How blessed is the man who does not stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, Father. But rather, his delight is in the law of the Lord, in your word. And this morning, Father, our delight is in your word. To be gathered, Father, for any other purpose is simply to be gathered as the world gathers. But to be gathered, Father, because first we came to know you by the power of your word, and now we desire to be like you by the power of your word. In that, Father, we are unique, we are called out, and we are so blessed. And we thank you, Father, that we could be here this morning with your word before us. Set our hearts right. Clear our minds and set aside distraction by the Holy Spirit, Father. And call us into a life of obedience by the Spirit so that what we learn, Father, may influence who we are and what we do. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the point at which Peter begins to draw to a close something we've been studying now for a couple of weeks, at least two or three weeks. And that was his exhortation to the readers to be ambassadors. To be those in this world who stand in Christ's place, representing Him to the world. And in that role as an ambassador, we are to take on His nature and character and decisions and thought. We are to stand in His place, so to speak, so that the world would see Him in us. That's what a good ambassador would do. You remember the list of things? Be holy because He is holy. To uh, do what's right rather than to do what's wrong. To respect authority to make sure that we are submitted to that authority and that we are ultimately willing to suffer for doing what's right, for righteousness' sake, in other words. That's where we ended last week. Why is Peter using those examples? Why are those the issues that he wants ambassadors to remember? Well, it is because the church is ultimately going to suffer, particularly his readers who we know were on the verge of suffering under the hand of Nero. So in the midst of suffering, he wants to prepare them for what will happen in that suffering. Things like a desire to come out from under the suffering by doing the wrong thing, by forsaking their witness, by, in some sense, hiding who they really are so that they may not see that persecution. These are the things he's helping them prepare for in this letter. But ultimately, and probably most difficult for the reader, is this basic concept that the church is going to be called by God to suffer. If he is truly sovereign, as we know he is out of his word, then you cannot escape the fact that if the church suffers, it suffers because God allows it. That if it were not the case that God wanted the church to suffer, fundamentally, we would not suffer. Nothing is greater than the power of God. So if a church like the ones in Peter's day are going to foresee or going to experience suffering, Anyone who knows their Bible and knows the God of the Bible is going to have this question come to mind, why? Why am I being called to suffer God? Why are you not stopping this suffering? Because I know you can, and yet you don't. Peter understands that question. He appreciates it, certainly. He anticipates it. And for this audience, and I think for the same for you and I today, we have to understand the why. Not, not so much because that's our demand, because he has to honor our demand, but more than anything, just so that we can understand the obedience that's required in the face of suffering, so that we can put some sense to it in our own mind. Let's look where we are today in chapter 3, verse 17, because as Peter sums up this issue, he's going to give us the why. And he's going to do it in the midst of some teaching that has often perplexed the church. Some of the most difficult verses in all of the New Testament are found between verse 17 of chapter 3 and the end of the chapter. We're going to tackle them all headlong this morning. And like a lot of controversies or misunderstandings in Scripture, our confusion can be addressed if we are careful to do two things in the course of our study. First, we need to understand the context of what the writer himself is addressing when he brings up these issues we're about to study. So we're going to keep context in mind. Secondly, Peter didn't write this, and more importantly, the Holy Spirit did not write this through Peter, absent all that came before it in Scripture. And therefore, to the readers who were receiving this letter, there was an expectation on the part of Peter, and I would argue from God himself, that they understood the Old Testament. Remember, these are Jewish believers who, as a function of their own upbringing in a Jewish culture, would have studied the Old Testament to a degree far exceeding what you and I have probably done in our own lives. They would have memorized many 
portions of it. And that familiarity with the Old Testament meant that Peter could address some issues out of the Old Testament to make his point today and trust that those readers would have immediately understood what he was saying and the context around it, the background around it, all that went with it. So if we're to understand these texts today, the verses we're going to study today, not only do we have to understand the context, we have to understand the history of these references Peter's going to make. And I'll do that as we go through it today. It's going to be a a patient effort. And as I said, if you have pencil and paper, it's probably to your benefit to take a few notes along the way. Chapter 3, verse 17. Let's begin there with what Peter says in this summation. He says, For it is better, if God should will it, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. We're going to pause there for just a moment. Look at verse 17 with me for just a moment. He establishes in this verse the principle by which we come to understand all of what He's written prior in this issue of suffering, And he is going to use it as a juncture, as a jumping off point in order to illustrate with this model, with this picture of Christ, to illustrate and prove his point. First, look at verse 17 and the two things he mentions there. He says, number one, suffering is possible even when you do what is right. Goes back to what we said last week. Suffering is not merely something that comes from doing the wrong thing. You can do everything right and yet suffer. The second principle you get out of chapter 3, verse 17, is that it is potentially the case that our suffering would be according to God's will. Did you notice that? If you have in your mind, maybe from your background in teaching, maybe from just assumptions you've made in your own study, if you believe that God in heaven is something like the grandfather in the rocking chair, and that the only kinds of things that ever come from the mind of God are the kinds of things that make us happy, and joyful, and pleasant. And so there's like a God that's good, and then there's the evil one who is the God that's bad, and all the bad stuff comes from the evil one, and all the good stuff comes from God. Is that your view of God? If so, let me tell you that's not the biblical view of God. God is all good. I'm not suggesting that the God of heaven is not all good. What I'm suggesting is that our own personal concept of what is good and what is bad is not always correct. If you ask your child how they would prefer that you as a parent discipline them, how often would they say, spank me hard and put me in my room every time I do the wrong thing, Mom? Very few children I know of would ask for that. What they'd ask for instead is, why don't you overlook it and assume I, knew, I know how to do it better next time and just trust me that I won't ever make that mistake again. Now, that's their idea of good, but as a parent, you know better. You know better, or you should know better, that the right way to approach that child is to merit out the discipline that their behavior requires for their own good. Now, I'm not saying every time God brings bad things in our life, that's discipline, but in many cases it is. But there are times in our life where God will allow us to suffer. And it's not a direct result of us doing anything wrong. That's what verse 17 just said. But rather, God is making it the case that we suffer for some ultimate good some eternal good, either for ourselves or maybe for somebody else. Yet it is still good in the absolute eternal sense. Even when we in our midst of our moment don't appreciate it as such and don't understand it and wish it weren't so. That's a mature biblical view of what God is about in terms of good and bad. And what Paul is, or what Peter is establishing here is this principle that sometimes the church will suffer for God's eternal good purpose, even if from our own perspective we don't understand or appreciate it. And we certainly don't feel we deserve it. Now, he wants to prove that point to you and I. He wants to make sure that though he stated it, we're not left with just verse 17. He didn't end the chapter there, in other words. He says, I need you to understand that this principle is not new. It's certainly not unique to you, to me. It's something that God has been about from the beginning. And there is eternal good purpose in it. And he begins where he should begin, which is with Christ himself as our example. And in this In this discussion that he's about to go through to prove his principle here, to prove this principle that you may suffer for the purpose of doing what's good, or despite doing what's good, for the purpose of God achieving something through that suffering, he is going to do something that I I call free association. You ever played this game? Free association, where, for example, I would say a word, and then you would let that word draw up in your mind 
a word or a thought, and you'd reply with that word or thought. Something that is associated with my word. So I might say tree, and then you might say dog, if you think like I do, I guess. And then from dogs, I might say leash. And then, you know, there'd be a word from there and a word from there and a word from there. Free association. I, that's how I see Peter working here. I don't know that that's exactly what he intended. I'm not sure that's the uh, Holy Spirit's viewpoint. But I see this, as we're about to start in verse 18 and onward, as a free association on Peter's part. Based on the assumption that the readers understand each of those little associations along the way. He doesn't give an elaboration of each one because his assumption is these are Jews. They understand their Old Testament. They got the point already. So he's going to make one association, followed by another, followed by another, followed by another. And with each of these associations, there's a background story that we need to spend a few minutes in. So I'm going to ask for your patience. I'm going to ask for your attention. But it's to our benefit that we understand what Peter is saying here. Otherwise, why read it? So let's take at least a little time today as we go through this free association, beginning with his first one in verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all. He begins with a little word, but a very important one. For, hotai in the Greek, H-O-T-I. It is intended to suggest or to communicate to us that he's connecting two thoughts. I'm not going to get into grammar here. I want you to understand just the point is he's about to prove in verse 18 what he just said in verse 17. So what he just said in verse 17 stands as a principle. Now, let me prove that to you. For, he says, Christ died once for all. What he's saying in those words in the Greek emphasizes the word once, not the words for all. In other words, he's not discussing here the extent of Christ's atonement. He's describing rather the finality of Christ's atonement. The emphasis in this phrase is, look, do you remember? Christ died once. Another way to say it would be once and for all. He did it once. It's done. There is no more atonement necessary. There's no more you or I could do to solve the problem of sin. Christ took care of that on the cross. It was a final solution, if you will, to that problem. And there is no repeating it. So if you remember, he says to his readers, remember, Christ died once for all. And why did he do that? He did it for the unrighteous, himself being righteous, yet dying for the unrighteous. This is a very important principle in the Christian faith. This is one of those principles that we need to pause just long enough to understand, because if you have lost the understanding of substitutionary atonement, it makes the rest of this passage much more difficult to follow. When Christ died on the cross, he was sinless. He had never violated the law. He had never done anything to violate the instructions of his Father. He was obedient. Paul says that there was no sin in him. Yet he became sin. In other words, his death on the cross was a payment for an offense he never committed. Remember, Paul says in Romans that the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. What Paul is expressing there very simply is that as we sin, we incur a debt before the holy and righteous judge of God. And that debt has but one penalty. It's not as though he has a range of options. He can't say, well, for some of you, if you sin, you do this, and for others, you do that. There's only one payment for sin available, and that is death, which biblically means an eternal separation from the Father. Not just our physical death, our spiritual separation from the Father. But what do you do in the case of someone like Christ who was put to that death process, but yet didn't deserve it of his own merit? He didn't have that sin in him. So he's effectively put forth a payment that does not have to apply to his own sin. It's available, therefore, for someone else. It's like you going to the judge and paying a parking fine, but you've never had a parking ticket. Well, that fine, having been paid for a ticket that didn't exist, could now be given to someone else whose ticket did exist. And for you and I, the, the principle, the biblical doctrinal principle of the Christian faith of substitutionary atonement, says that the reason Christ's death on the cross can save me from anything is because he had no sin in him of of his own. That's a very important biblical doctrine, by the way. If anybody were to argue with you about whether Christ was sinless or not, you take them to this principle and you say, you don't understand, there is no Christian faith without a sinless Messiah. For if he had had even one sin, then his death on the cross was paying his own penalty. And therefore, it wouldn't be available to give to you or I. It's a very important principle of the Christian faith. Jesus took our place. The second thing, though, that Peter is saying, rather, in this verse, is that it's not just the fact that he died sinless, the righteous for the unrighteous, but also the manner. When he died, it was not some kind of imitation of death. 
There was an early church teaching among Gnostics and others that said that, or Doicists actually, that said that Christ never actually died. That he was, in his, he was in the body of the man Jesus, God was in the body of the man Jesus on the cross, but before that body actually physically experienced death, God the Father removed his spirit from that man so that God himself never actually died. To them it felt wrong to suggest that the God of the universe could ever go through a death process. So they rationalized it by saying that the death actually took place after God had left the body of the man Jesus. Here's the problem, though. If that had actually happened, it's not a substitutionary atonement. The real penalty of death, or or of sin rather, is not the torturous process that preceded the cross. The real penalty of sin is what happened at the moment that Christ literally died on the cross. What followed next? For you and I, if we die absent faith in the Lord, what God says in His Word happens for you and I is a process that includes not just our physical death, but a spiritual separation from the Father. To be put in a place we typically call hell. If Christ did not repeat that process, then He didn't substitute for us. If any part of that process is cut short, then it's not a substitution. You cannot say then that He suffered what we would have suffered in our place. And look where He goes further in verse 18. He says, as he died, he died in the flesh. This is a phrase, this is somewhat euphemistic, somewhat of a picture here, but what he's saying very clearly is, he walked the steps of an earthly man going through the death process. He died in flesh the way you and I would die in flesh. He then goes on to say, and he was raised in the Spirit. He's adding then on a balance here, on the, on the flip side. If he died the way you and I died, he's raised the way you and I are raised, is the point. It's the parallelism. That in the way he went to the grave, he also was resurrected in the way that you and I can expect to be resurrected. He took the place that you and I would have taken had we died absent faith. So take as your first point, if you're keeping notes, the first free association is this basic biblical principle that what Christ did was 100% obedient life to God, 100% sinless life, which I would argue is doing the right thing. Would you not agree? He did good. And yet he suffered for doing what was good at the hand of the Father. By the Father's agency, he was told to do it, and he did what he was told to do. So, point number one, principle number one, is that if you look to Christ's life, you see very clearly this example lived out of a man who was called by the Father to do things that I'm sure in his own flesh he never wanted to do. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane for a minute and all the angst, that came with the expectation Christ had for what he was going to go do the next day, he knew that that was going to hurt. I mean, he understood the suffering of it. And he was longing for any opportunity to avoid it. And yet he went all the way through it in obedience. That is an example for all of us in that God may call us to do things that in our own personal life bring suffering, and yet God would produce good in it. What was the good God produced in how he put his son to death? Only the salvation of mankind. That leads Peter to this next free association. Having talked about how Christ doing the right thing and yet suffering became an opportunity for God to do wonderful works, he then goes to the next free association in verse 19. He says, In which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Well, there's an interesting thought. That came out of nowhere, didn't it? Or at least it seems so. If he stated in verse 17 that you can suffer for doing what's right, Or, you can suffer for doing what's wrong. It's so much better to suffer for doing what's right. The first example he gave was an example of what? Of Jesus doing what's right and suffering. So, where would you expect him to go next? An example of doing what's wrong and suffering. As a contrast. And he's going to do this back and forth at least a couple of times. He now, but he he links the two in this free association. Christ now becomes the link. So it's like turning the page. You just heard about Christ. Oh, and by the way, Christ, remember, went down, he says, and preached or proclaimed to spirits now in prison. Let's try to piece this apart and understand what this second reference is about. He made proclamation, he says, to the spirits now in prison. First thing to note, Jesus went somewhere. The first thing to note is he physically went somewhere new. He left where he was and he ended up at somewhere new, which in the context of his death means that when his body was taken off the cross and put in the tomb, Christ in spirit went somewhere. Where did he go? Well, he went to some physical place that's not obviously earth itself 
And secondly, the second note you make is, this is a place that continues to exist even to today. It's not a place that existed just in the moment for Christ's sake as he died. It is a place that exists even in this moment. And you can see that in the way that verse is written, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Alright, so one thing we know is it's a place not on earth. Second place, or second thing we know, it's a place that still exists today. What more can we understand about this place? Well, it's a place where spirits dwell. Clearly they, they dwell. You notice that? They're not just passing through. It's a prison. It's a place of confinement. They are confined. The word for prison here, feluke, in the, in the Greek, it's the same word that Paul will use frequently when he talks about his own imprisonment. So this is a place you don't want to be. You wish you weren't, but you can't get out. And it has a population of spirits. What kind of place is this? Well, just with what we know so far, and there is more to come, there are some more clues coming in the next series of verses, but even before we look at them, what we know so far about this place, it fits the description perfectly of a place called Sheol. And Sheol itself is the Old Testament uh, term used for the place where the dead go, and it has two parts. Now, we have to spend a little bit of time on this, or you have no hope to understand what he's talking about in this part of chapter 3. Throughout the Old Testament, there are references to a holding place of the dead called Sheol. And based on many references from Genesis all the way through the prophets, and there are many of them, it's clear that this place is not simply the place for the unbeliever, but rather it is a holding place in the Old Testament for both the spirits of those who are believers as well as those who are unbelievers. Let me just give you an example of that real quickly. Out of Psalms chapter 10, David says this, the wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. All right, well, that's clearly bad, sure enough. But if I go back in Genesis, chapter 37, verse 35. This is Jacob now. This is one of the patriarchs. This is a man who understood where he was with respect to God. He's not confused about whether he's going to heaven or hell. Okay, let's set that straight. Look how he describes his own death. In mourning for his son, he says this in the verse 35, Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So this is Jacob saying he's going to go to Sheol. David later in the psalm says wicked people go to Sheol. Clearly this is a place that can contain both. That's a bit of an oddity. We don't understand how to reconcile this. Until chapter 16 of Luke came along. And in chapter 16 of Luke, Jesus gives us a very clear and detailed description of this place in a story that we typically call Lazarus and the rich man. It's not a parable. There's some very clear differences between a parable and, and the story told in Luke 16. But without going into all the background, let me just tell you the short of it. In Luke chapter 16, we find out that this place, Sheol, actually has two halves, two sides. There is the good side, if you will, that Jesus refers to as Abraham's bosom, which is a euphemistic way of saying the place where Abraham is. Remember, if you're an Old Testament saint and God said, where do you want to go? Your answer was, wherever Abraham went, that's where I want to go. The father of faith, the father of my nation, whatever you do for him, that's good enough for me. On the other hand, though, there is a place that the rich man goes, the unbelieving man in the story that Jesus tells. It's called Hades or hell. The word we get for hell comes out of the Greek word Hades. So you have, on the one hand, a good side, and on the other hand, a bad side. The two could see each other. They could even communicate according to Jesus' story, but you couldn't cross between the two. One was bliss. One was torment. This was the holding place of the dead for those who died prior to Christ's resurrection. Now, why was there a holding place for the dead? To include the good, those who believed and died in faith. Why a holding place? Why aren't they in, quote, heaven? Well, the answer to that comes on the principle of first fruits of the resurrection. Prior to Christ's own death and resurrection, no one could be resurrected and brought into the throne room because there had not yet been an atonement for sin. So God in grace provided a blissful place for the saints of old to live awaiting the day of Christ's atonement. And then... Paul tells us out of Ephesians that Christ, in one of the things Christ did as he died and descended, was he set free the captives. As Christ was then resurrected, he could then bring with him the souls of the Old Testament saints who up to that moment had been waiting in Abraham's bosom for this very opportunity. 
But now that Christ had died and paid the price for sin and there was an atonement available, he could be the first fruits of the resurrection. No one was going to be resurrected prior to him. But then all those who had died in faith prior were available now to move into the heavenly realm with Christ. Now, as we speak, Abraham's bosom is empty. And no one who dies today would go there because there's no need for the holding place. To be absent the body is to be present with the Lord. On the other hand, the bad side is still full and getting fuller every day. Hades and hell is a place that we know from Revelation is not emptied until after the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. That's when we hear that Hades and hell give up their dead. That's the point in which that side will be emptied. Now, why am I going into all that? Well, because Peter expected his readers to understand that. And because his readers understood it, he only had to make this brief passing mention that Christ descended to a place which is a prison in which he could proclaim to spirits. That brings us to the next clue in this this section. What does he mean by spirits? Well, the word for spirit here in the Greek is most commonly used in the New Testament for angelic or demonic spirits. In all the study I could do, I only found one time in the entire New Testament where it's used to reference human spirits, and this isn't that time. In other words, a fair interpretation of language would tell us that what he's referring to here when he says spirits is not the dead human spirits, those who had died absent faith, they may be there too. But he's referring here very specifically to a group of spirits that were angelic or demonic. Well, that only adds to the intrigue, does it not? What's he saying to this group? Well, that brings us to the word proclaim. The word proclaim here in the Greek, keruso, K-E-R-U-S-S-O. This word has a variety of meanings, and it is used at times to mean preach. But when you look at the way Peter uses this word, I'm talking now throughout this letter and throughout his second letter, he uses the word caruso never to respond to or never to refer to the gospel being preached. Every time he talks about the gospel being preached, he uses a different Greek word, eugalizo, which is a word from which we can get evangelize. When he wants to say preach the gospel, he uses a different word. Here he's using a word that means proclaim, but in some other sense. In other words, Jesus went down into hell and he said something to a group of spirits, but what he said was not the gospel. He proclaimed something else. He made some statement to them that we don't yet understand. Go to the next free association. He says, who were once disobedient? Stop there just for a moment. You see the free association? Who is the who here? Who is he talking about? It's got to be the spirits, right? We just learned something more about these spirits. They were disobedient. Well, that immediately rules out angelic spirits and limits us to demonic spirits. Remember, a demon is nothing more than an angel who rebelled with Lucifer against God and as a result of that rebellion was cast down. Revelation tells us that a third of the host of heaven went with Lucifer when he rebelled. So if these are disobedient spirits, and that makes sense, right? They're in prison. Then it's demonic beings, fallen angels, in other words, that we're talking about here. Again, it's perplexing. It's it's fascinating. We're not sure exactly where he's going yet. Let's go over a little further in verse 20. When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. You see the free association continuing, right? It's like you can hardly get your mind around what he's just said, and he's bringing up something new again. But again, he assumes the readers have got a background that lets them follow his line of thought. Let's continue in our own uh, exploration here and see if we can follow it better. This is a continuation of the same Greek sentence. And he brings in this new clause. And he says, these were disobedient spirits, as we've already said. And then he says, it's in the time... When God's patience occurred in the days of Noah. Alright, well, he started by saying, suffer for do what's right, rather than suffering for doing what's wrong. For Christ suffered for doing what was right. And in his suffering, God made a miracle from that. Or, you can suffer for doing what's wrong. Like those spirits that he preached to, or that he proclaimed to, when he went down and visited them in the prison. Why was Christ in this prison at all? Why did he ever make this trip? Because he's walking in our place. 
He's going through the death process to include the process of descending to hell, which would have been the outcome of any of us who would have gone to death prior to faith or absent faith. So he's walking the walk you and I would have walked. And while he's there, he happens to state something to these demons because he has this opportunity. We still don't understand what he said. We still don't understand what the significance is of Peter bringing this up. And now Peter says, these are the spirits who were disobedient back during a time when God was being patient prior to the flood of Noah. So if I really want to understand who these spirits are, I need to go back into Genesis chapter 6. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time there. Just four verses. But chapter 6 of Genesis, if you want to turn there, verses 1 through 4, give us the historical background to explain who these spirits are and why they were disobedient. And why it was important that God proclaimed something to them when Jesus descended. Let me read you the first four verses of chapter 6. Now when it came about, when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whoever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. It just gets more bizarre, doesn't it? I don't know how familiar you are with the story of Noah. I obviously don't have time to give it to you in all detail. For the purposes we have this morning, we just want to understand this time period that Peter references this period when God was patient, waiting, prior to the flood. Well, that's the period of time we just described, more or less. What's absent here is the discussion of the time required to build the ark. That's another part of this time. But this is the genesis of it, not to make a pun. But this, this is the heart of it right here. Let's look at some of the words in, this, in these verses I read and, and see if we can put this together. This is a point in time in history when men have begun to fill the earth rapidly. Remember, though God had pronounced a curse on the earth which transferred to men because we are a product of the earth, we, we suffer under that same curse in the sense that our body is going to die just as the earth is going to fall apart, God proclaimed. Well, that was true, yes, but the full effect of that curse had not taken form and shape such that men were still living very long lives, though they died anyway, eventually. Noah was born only a few decades after Adam died, if you look at your genealogies. So, while it's true that we've gone quite a period of time since the beginning, even to this point, it's also true to say that there was extraordinary growth in population because birth is taking place and death, for the most part, isn't. So, the world is filling fast with people, even though it may only have been about 1,500 years since Adam left the garden. At this point, we're told, and it's a very interesting phrase in the Greek, the sons of God come and mate with the daughters of men. Now, the word sons of God, it's two words in the Hebrew, ben Elohim, and ben just means son, Elohim means Lord God. Those words are not unique in and of themselves, but that phrase, ben Elohim, it only occurs here and in Job. And in Job, it is an obvious, clear reference to angels. And so, if we're going to make some fair interpretation of what it means here, the only cross-reference I have in the whole of the Bible is to Job, where it's used to describe angels. It's especially, I think, true that this means angel here as well. When you look at it in its own context, it's contrasted with daughters of men. Well, that's clearly a reference to the normal product of human birth. So, on the one hand, you have daughters of men, but then you have sons of God, which is not a reference to just mere man. By contrast, it's meant to suggest a different kind of being. And again, because of Job, I would argue these are angels. So what you have here is this disturbing, odd kind of consequence or, or prospect that angels, and clearly Peter's already told us these are the disobedient angels, so demons, in other words, come in and mate physically with women. Now, besides just being disturbing, if you're confused as to whether that's even possible, I want you to consider things you've already accepted out of Scripture without question. Things like, for example, the angels that came in the time of Lot and visited him in his home. And Lot didn't know they were angels. He thought they were real visiting men. Saw them as flesh men. These were the same angels who had earlier visited Abraham, and Abraham had fed them, and they had eaten. 
There is a clear, there, there's plenty of evidence, and you can use many other examples as well. There's clear evidence in Scripture that angelic beings can take human form and in that form convince you and I that they are real flesh and blood humans. And we would never be the wiser. That's why Hebrews says, some have entertained angels and not known it. That means that though the women themselves obviously had a very personal encounter with these angels, it does not require that they understood these beings to be angelic. But what was also true, however, was the product of that union was not a normal human outcome. It was a distorted, bizarre, uh, a polluted form of the human race. A, a, a group of people which the Bible here calls Nephilim. It's a word in the Hebrew. You know what the word in the Hebrew is? Nephilim. The reason we don't have it translated to something else is because we don't know what the word means. It's its only occurrence is here. We can only surmise what it means from the context. And from the context, these are big, mighty men who were so different from the normal human offspring that they became men of renown. Some have even argued that perhaps it was this race of people who gave opportunity for the rise of some of the early Greek and Roman mythology. That what we now know as truly myth started in its original form as stories of history told about some of what these men might have been able to do. I mean, they may have had some kind of supernatural power. They may have at the very least been supernatural in strength or size. Whatever it was about them that made them different, they were clearly different. And more importantly, they were clearly a perversion of the human race. And as a perversion, God could not allow it. If you've ever wondered why God flooded the earth at the time he did, why, out of all of human history, did he just decide out of nowhere that now sin was so bad he needed to cover the globe in water? What a dramatic step. You'd think if that were the case then, he certainly has cause to do it again now, right? And But for his promise, he probably would. The reason it was so unique and necessary in this time, I would argue, is because of this specific event. Now, why is this specific event so dangerous to mankind? So, so terrible that God had to step in and put a halt to it, to basically wipe out this race and prevent it from spreading and consuming the population and taking over the world. Well, to understand that, you have to go back to Genesis, chapter 3. Stay with me. Chapter 3, verse 15. Chapter 3, verse 15. God cast judgment on Satan for what Satan did in the garden. Look what he says in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is called the Proto-Evangelium by scholars. That's a Latin phrase for the first gospel. Whether you knew it or not, the gospel just got preached to you in verse 15. Here's what it said. The serpent, which we know is Satan, from Revelation we're told that he was, the, he was Satan, came into the garden and deceived woman and led to the fall of man. Because of what he did, he was cursed which is a word in the Scripture that means eternally damned. But it was done in a very interesting way. God said, this is what I'm going to do. He says, I'm going to put, essentially, a fight between you and the seed of woman. Now, what's interesting about that phrase is, biblically speaking, women don't have seed. I mean, I understand that women carry eggs, I understand the biology, but that's not the way the Bible uses the terminology. The seed is the part of conception that is uniquely the male's contribution. So when you hear the seed of woman, it's an oxymoron. Women don't have seed. How is it that there could be a seed of woman? This would have to be, in some way, a unique person who could come from a woman, but without the seed of a man. Another way of saying that is a virgin birth. The product of a woman, but yet without the seed of a man having been involved. A virgin birth. So there would be an individual, God says here, a virgin birth, who will come to destroy this serpent, or Satan himself. The seed of Satan is, is the terminology here. But before that happens, God adds this interesting little consequence or clause. He says, before that ultimate strike to the serpent, the serpent himself will have an opportunity to strike at this seed of the woman before the, the final blow is dealt to the serpent. Now look at the language in contrast in verse 15. He says, you will have an opportunity to strike him on the heel, but he will strike you on the head. If you set about to kill me and I told you the only place you could strike me was on my heel, how likely are you to deal a death blow? I don't care how hard you try. Even if you take a machete, I mean, as gross as that sounds, you can't strike a blow at that part of the body which would produce enough blood flow, enough calamity, that the body would ever die. And it's not coincidental that that's how it's described here. It's intentional. God has said to the enemy, you'll have a limited opportunity to strike at this Messiah, at this virgin birth that's coming. 
but not a kind of blow that will result in his destruction. But in return, this seed of woman is going to have the opportunity to strike you where? On the head. Well, it doesn't take very much at all to kill someone if you strike them on the head. And this imagery is intentional. It's intended to communicate the difference in the outcome. We know, looking back on the history of of all that's happened since, we see this playing out perfectly, don't we? What God did with Satan was give him a limited opportunity to strike his son, but even in that, he turned it to wonderful good. He's speaking, of course, about about the crucifixion. It was at the hand of the enemy that the Romans and the Jews and ultimately Judas himself all played their part to make sure Jesus died on the cross as God needed him to die. And from Satan's point of view, I'm winning, I'm winning, I'm winning. And then when the resurrection comes, he goes, ugh, not what I planned. In response to that, though, the enemy has been put on notice that God intends to deal a death blow to him by the hands of this same seed. By Christ's return, the enemy will be destroyed, right? Now, you're Satan for just a minute. I know for some of you that might be a little easier than, than others. You're Satan. You've heard the Proto-Evangelium. What are you inclined to do now? Only everything you can to stop it. Everything you can to prevent this prophecy from taking place. It began with Cain. You know, there was no understanding about when this would occur. So the enemy assumes that, well, the first birth of woman is going to be the seed. I better put him out of commission. If I draw him down into sin, he's, not, he's no longer eligible to be this this Messiah to save men from their sins. So he uses uh, deception and, and, uh, and hatred and jealousy and he brings Cain to the point of murder. Then he finds out, well, Cain was never the one anyway. Later on, he isn't done, of course. Later on, if you jump all the way to the time of Herod, when Herod finds out that there has been this birth of the Messiah, Satan uses Herod to go out and kill all the firstborn. This is, again, his attempt to cut off this opportunity for the seed to ever be born, much less show up and destroy him as predicted. There's plenty of other things the enemy's been at work doing. He's never stopped, of course. But between those two events, there's this event in chapter 6. What the enemy does through his demonic realm is send them down to begin mating with women. Because in that mating, he begins to pollute this seed of woman. He begins to put the human race at risk and in a place where they are no longer capable of supporting the plan God has established, that through woman would come the solution to man's sin. And of course, had that been allowed to play out, it very well would have succeeded. So what God the Father did is step in in the course of the Noah flood and say, I'm not going to strive with men in the flesh this way for more than 120 years. And it was 120 years after the time of Genesis chapter 6 that the flood came. Remember, this is the group, the demons, the group that suffered for doing what was wrong. Their suffering is that they are now in this prison. Jesus has come down. What do you think Jesus said to the spirits when he shows up? And there they are. These are the spirits who mated with women. These are the spirits who set about trying to thwart God's plan for the seed to ever show up, much less atone for sin. And here is the Christ who's just atoned for sin, standing before them, looking at them, saying, I believe your plan didn't work. My proclamation to you is, I'm here as testimony against you. Why is this example here? Because it stands in contrast to the earlier one. Christ did what was right and he suffered for doing what was right. This group is now about to suffer for doing what was wrong. And they're sitting in the place of this prison, hearing from their judge, who is turning to them and, and I believe proclaiming that their judgment is assured because of his death on the cross. He just conquered the death that they would wish to bring to all mankind. So there is your example of suffering for doing what's wrong. Well, that leads to the free association of Noah and of the Noahic flood and of the ark. You know, Noah spent over 100 years of his life building this ark. I want you to think about that for just a minute. Not the prospect of living 100 years. Even that's rare, right? We're talking about a man who set about, set about building a boat based on God's word, far from water, and in an age that had never seen rain, ever, to that point. What kind of kook does that? Think about what he must have heard from the people around him through a hundred years of building. You crazy old man, what are you doing? I might have done it for like a year, maybe two, you know, before you give up. He did it for a hundred years. Then he gets in the ark and it doesn't rain for a week. Can you imagine the sixth day in that boat? Noah's wife looking at him going, you better be right about this. Right? Here's a man who suffered for doing what was right, did he not? The suffering he experienced, not just in the course of building the boat and of the mocking, 
But think about coming out of it at the end of all of this to a world that's been laid waste and you're the only family on the earth. Talk about feeling lonely. The suffering of Noah became the means by which God could then save humanity. And that, I think, is the free association flip here. He's gone back now to discussing if you do what's right and obey, it nonetheless may require suffering that in its purpose sees good ultimately, but maybe not for you personally. Maybe not in the way you would understand it in your walk. But what if Noah hadn't been obedient? What if Jesus hadn't been obedient? What if they had said, you know, what's good is what's good for me now. And that's all that matters. Think about the outcome of that. Well, to make sure we don't go too much longer, I want to just cover his last couple of, of free associations. He says, corresponding to that, you can even hear the association taking place in his mind, right? Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for, good, for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just briefly, I know this verse is often misused, or at least I've seen it misused quite a bit. We can settle this fairly easily. The first word, corresponding, in the Greek, the word is antitype. That's its literal translation, antitype. What he's saying is, I'm going to draw in a comparison now in a type form. What Noah saw happen in the ark as he floated on those waters was a picture, a type, of what you can experience yourself when you're baptized. I don't have time for today to go through all of the ways in which the ark and the flood picture salvation in Christ, but the, the list would take all day. Just a couple. The boat itself, if you understand its construction, had but one door through which you enter. And once you're in it, God closes it. You, you know, they were in, the God closed the door, they couldn't get out. It's covered by pitch. The word for pitch, as it's used in Genesis, is the same exact Hebrew word used later in Leviticus for atonement. So the boat is covered with atonement. That's what allows it to float on God's judgment waters and safely ride out the flood. There's symbolism present in the fact that the number of days they were on the water, on the day the flood came and on the day the water receded. All of those match up to dates in the Jewish calendar, which correspond to days of Jesus' own life and resurrection, burial, and the like. There's a perfect parallel picture in all that God did through the flood to illustrate to you and I that when we trust in Christ, we walk into the ark of Christ. We place our trust in Christ to save us from the coming judgment that God is going to bring on the earth. And that trust, by the way, comes on nothing more than God's Word. Remember, He spent a week in the ark before He even saw a drop of rain. You trust in Christ because of what you're told will happen in the future, not necessarily on the basis of what you see in front of you today. That's what faith requires. And he says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Where people get wrapped around the axle on this is the thought that maybe Peter means I have to physically be baptized to be saved. Peter himself clarifies that for us in the text. He says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. That's a way of saying, not the physical act of getting in the water. Think about this. When Noah got into the boat physically and rode out the waves physically, did he get spiritually saved by that? No. He got out of the boat. He went back to real life when it was all said and done. There was nothing about the physical act of getting in the boat that saved him spiritually. But yet, what did it take for him to want to get in the boat? What guy in his right mind would spend a hundred years building the thing, much less put himself and his family and every animal he could find in the boat? And close the door. What do you, why would you do that except that you believe God's Word? Similarly, why dunk yourself in water in front of other people unless and until you believe what you say you believe about Christ and therefore you obey His command to be baptized? So you are saved through baptism in the sense that you are giving evidence of what has changed in your heart. No different than when Noah got in that boat, he gave evidence of what he believed about God's Word. So he says, corresponding to what Noah did, you yourselves have the same opportunity to do what's right and perhaps suffer for it. Back to his reader's own situation in the day of, of Nero. He says, when you are willing to stand in a public way and be baptized, you are taking upon yourself a real risk. In Peter's day particularly, these Jews were putting themselves at physical harm because they made this public stand for Christ. And he says, you can do what Noah did. You can get in the water, so to speak. You can put yourself in Christ's ark. And when you do that, you'll be much like Noah. You will suffer persecution for it and ridicule. And you may not see, as a result of that good work, a wonderful, blissful life here and now. But don't let that disturb you, because he says, Christ himself, having resurrected, go to the next verse with me, 
who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. You know how you sum up verse 22? Because you win in the end. Because he in the end, and look at the nice circle Peter is drawn here. In the end, where do you find Christ now? In prison, so to speak, standing there with these other spirits saying, I won and you didn't. And any who put their trust in me, win with me. So those in this church who in this day had felt the pressure of coming persecution and had thought that perhaps that was a sign that either they were doing something wrong and should change or it put in doubt for them a commitment to their faith, he says, you're not alone. Christ himself suffered for doing what was right and God did a miracle through it for the sake of mankind. The spirits, on the other hand, are suffering for having done what's wrong. Likewise, Noah. Noah suffered for doing what was right and he saved mankind through his obedience in the face of terrible persecution and suffering and mocking and self-doubt, I'm sure. And yet, he will be resurrected just as you and I will with Christ who has already been placed in a position of authority over all those who would try to come against you and I. The battle's already been won. Even if in our day-to-day we don't see it because our own limited perspective. That's the message Peter is carrying at the end of this chapter. Next week we go chapters 4, then 5, and onward to finish. And we'll continue as Peter has drawn us into this letter, understanding how it is we can walk this faith through Christ. And as an ambassador, understand that the call is not to bliss, not to riches, not to comfort necessarily, not to perfection in all that we try to strive and do. No, that's not about what it means to be an ambassador. It is about holding firm to representing the one we stand in the place of, despite our circumstances. And then trust that God will put that to good work, eternal work. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for unfolding your word today by your Spirit. Father, we'll open the book at times and find passages that challenge us. We may come away believing we understand it, and then perhaps in a future day we know we missed something, as we often do. It matters not, Father, for what we did as we opened your word today was not come away with an intellectual understanding. We came away, Father, with a deeper, more abiding love and understanding of you to the limits as you make available by your Spirit. That's all we depend on. But, Father, we also depend on you for the agency of effort and motivation and desire to live it out. How easy it is, Father, to sit here this morning, perhaps, and to talk about suffering and to consider what we would do and say as a result of your calling on our life. But how much more difficult is it to live it out when the time comes? But, Father, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so we look to that strength, not our own. Give us that strength in the time, Father, of our testing. Make us worthy of the test, Father. Let us be a good ambassador and to be finding favor with you for having done what's right. Thank you, Lord, for the teaching. And may we come back next week according to your will and continue in our study. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.